welcome to this edition of DMZ America, the podcast. It's Sunday, September 26th. I'm Scott Stantis, coming to you from the right. And coming to you from the left, I'm Ted Rawl. So um, they found, sadly, the remains of Gabby Petito, the blonde white woman who went missing. <laughs> and it just the, latest, seemed... the latest blonde woman yes. who went missing to be, uh, certain, to be talked about a lot on national and international media. At the exclusion of actual news stories. I mean, yes, this is sad for his, for her family. Sad. I mean, I'm sure this is her boyfriend had something to do with it. I feel sure it looks like that. Mm -hmm. I feel for her parents. I mean, this is, but although we have to be careful just parenthetically before we say that, just remember like the, remember the, um, the, who was, who was the woman in Italy who uh, spent time in an Italian prison. Oh, know. yeah. Oh, gosh. Why, why did you do this to me, Ted? Right out of the Sorry, shoot. I do the same thing. <laughs> but anyway, the point is, it turns out she, you know, the, let's just say there's considerable doubt as to whether she was guilty or not. There's some doubt, but yeah. Um, so you never know. We, in this, it is still know. America, and you are still innocent until proven guilty. Absolutely. But the, but the real point and the bigger point is that a, it sucked the news. I mean, it sucked the air of every other news story for a couple of weeks here. Um, and Ted and I kind of agree on this one. Um, here's a, a, a pleasant looking Caucasian blonde woman. And she goes missing. You never hear of the national press on either side, you know, you don't see MSC, MSNBC going bananas on stories like this. You don't see CNN going bananas on stories like this or Fox News or anyone else going bananas on this if the woman is of color ever. And in fact, why, you know, there's an actual consequence to this lack of concern when, people, when women of color go missing like this. And that's they've discovered they found this gentleman who actually did paintings of his victims. And he's now probably the biggest or the most uh, prolific serial killer in the history of our country. Literally pro they think the number could be well over a hundred, maybe closer to 200 or more of African-American women. He picked up murdered, got rid of, did paintings of them, which is strange. And, um, and then disposed of the bodies in various ways. My point is, you know, why in the world do we do this, Ted? We get infatuated. Well, here's the thing. Just before 9-11, we had, um, oh, um, what was her name? Um, help me out, Ted. You're looking at the internet. Who are we? Uh, who are you looking for? Uh, Condit's. Um, he, oh, Gary Condit. and uh, Congressman Gary Condit was having an affair with his intern. Uh, Chandra Levy. Chandra Levy, and uh, he was all sorts of people were. It, it was the summer of Chandra Levy and shark attacks. And like and Chandra, a, yeah, Chandra Levy was jogging in Rock Creek Park in Washington D.C., which is uh, for people not familiar with D.C. is a surprisingly rugged park in the middle of uh, an urban area, and uh, she vanished. And Congressman Condit. Um, ac- First, it was extremely evasive, and as it turns out, mainly because, you know, he just didn't want the truth of his affair to come out. And after it did come out, he was deeply embarrassed. His career was ruined. It was why – I think he was interviewed by Barbara Walters, if I'm not correct, if, if memory serves. And he looked guilty as shit. And I think <laughs> I would be uh, – I, I think you probably, like me – we never talked about this before – thought he was guilty as shit. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and I he, thought it was one of those Washington stories. She was about to blab or she got pregnant, you know, something. Right. And he was about to. Like a total house of cards type scenario. Yeah. Anyway, turns out he was pure as the driven snow. Wow. In, not in that. Well, in turn, <laughs> he didn't kill her. And okay, he, he wasn't a murderer. Well, he wasn't a murderer. He was just a, 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 a you know, he was a, he was a cheat. He was a cheater. Uh, and anyway, he ended, which by Washington standards makes you a saint. And uh, he ended up going to, and, uh, but he lost everything, even though he really was innocent. And it was, she was murdered by uh, uh, a deranged homeless guy in the park. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that was, a, again, a tragic story. Feel sorry for her. Feel sorry for the family. I mean, she wasn't missing though, really. Um, I think they found the body pretty quickly. No, so no he, I don't believe they did. Is, oh, that, you're right. You're right. No, it did take a while. But they, we're talking about, so there's like, they, cut, they have a name for this. They call it missing white woman syndrome or missing uh, pretty white woman syndrome. And we're talking about people like Natalie Holloway uh, or uh, Lacey Peterson. Uh, if you go remember oh, back sure. into the early 2000s, um, there's, just a long list of these kinds of uh, cases that everybody talks about. Uh, there's, there's sort of a sociologists have wondered aloud about why it is that uh, women of low social status, particularly women of color who go missing, or for that matter, men who go missing, uh, just get seem to get like no coverage at all in the media and uh, why pretty blonde white women sort of fall into this sort of weird 17th century captive narrative kind of thing that captures the well, country's I mean, what, what do you imagination. I, yeah, I think it's easy. I think the explanation is real easy, but you tell me, Ted. Well, um, so there's a, so sociologists uh, often say that this is about reinforcing social hierarchy and that it's about saying that the most important, you know, because loss is about grief and grief is about what's important and what matters most that who we grieve for the most is uh, sort of like a sainthood, and that sort of creates a canonical order in our in our uh, in our racial and uh, socioeconomic hierarchy in this country. And I mean, I, I think that's true. I think the question, though, is since the media has been made aware of their behavior in these cases for such a long time. Why did this happen again? They still don't care because they get. They get numbers. I think you're. I think you're right. It reinforces the racial stereotypes of our country. Well, if a black, black girl, black woman goes missing, well, you know how those people are. You know, I mean, and but you know, a white woman goes missing. Well, something must be terribly wrong with the. Yeah, culture. I mean, it's interesting, right? We don't blame her. Like we don't say, and and, and we shouldn't. Uh, you know, hey, you know, why didn't you dump that asshole? Uh, you know, why were you with this abusive, you know, bastard? You know, that's your fault. We don't blame her. Uh, we don't do victim blaming. We just say, poor girl, shouldn't have happened. Uh, you know, let's get justice for her. Let's hang the, the fucker who did this. Um, but, I, you know, I mean, I do think this is, a, to me, that look, obviously what happened to her is terrible. Uh, shouldn't happen to anyone. It, it's, it goes without saying, but I guess we have to say it. But I think what I, I mean, I do think it, it's time for the media to, to stop already because it's gross. It sucks the air out of the room and it's, there's no equity in it. It's not fair. I mean, if I had, if I was a, a you know, a person of a, a, a dude of color and I, and I, and my 
daughter were M- or my wife were MIA, and I was dialing for M- producers at MSNBC and CNN to cover this story, and no one would touch it. I would be breaking so many things in my house, um, you know, watching this kind of coverage. It's really, it's grotesque. It's, it's grotesque. It's hurtful. But I want to say coming from and having lived in media, the you know, the mainstream media for 40 years, I can tell you one of the reasons we've touched on, which, you know, is just kind of protecting the hierarchy. But the other thing we're not, we're not touching on is it's easy, Ted. It's easy to cover this story. It's one story. It's one story person. You don't have to send out a fleet of reporters. You don't have to send out a fleet of, of photographers. You just go to this one place, you know, you, you stake out the house, you go and, you know, and there's no investigative reporting required here. No, there's not. She's missing there. You've just investigated it. And the guy <laughs> looks sleazy and what's he been up to? And is there footage of him anywhere? And when he came home, why did his parents protect him? It does the, um, the uh, Natalie Holloway story. There's a lot of similarities here in the sense that the guy who actually did, I'm there's no evidence, but I'm going to say it anyway. He did kill Natalie Holloway because he went on to kill other women. <laughs> he was a serial killer, and dad was protecting him. Now, let me ask you something. We're both dads, Ted. If you discovered your son was a serial killer, mm. do you think you'd uh, – would you defend them? Would you send them out of town? Would you pay gobs of money for their defense? Would you hide them, which is both what – I might pay gobs of money for his defense, but I cert because I think everyone's entitled to a good defense, and I would want him. I would figure that he probably was deranged and needed to be sent to a mental asylum uh, rather than sent to prison. Um, but I would not. I think I would not protect him uh, from the consequences of his actions. Um, you know. Now I, I do make an exception because I've said this before. In the case of a political serial killer like the Unabomber. Ted Kaczynski, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I don't, I'm uncomfortable with the fact that his brother ratted him out. Um, you know, his brother like read the manifesto and to say, and he was like, I know that prose. I know that <laughs> anti-industrialization uh, rhetoric. Uh, you know, I, I know those turns of phrase. So he called the FBI and, and that's how he got ultimately got caught. And he naively said, Oh, you know, like, I'll tell tell you who it is as long as you promise not to send him to a really bad prison, which, of course, when they did, they sent him to a really bad prison, a supermax. Why does that bother you? I mean, seriously, if you found out, I mean, you and I are closest brothers. If you found out I was, I'd sent, I'd sent a manifesto and you'd know it was me because there was just a million typos. (laughs) (laughs) It would be like that spelling, that Stantis spelling. I know that. In fact, you could sign it under your own name and it might be misspelled. So they might not get you. Hey, hey, I'm not, yeah, I'm not bad. Sometimes I'm bad. I'm bad. Yeah, yeah. But okay, let's say, in all seriousness, you, this manifesto you say holy there's american public education at work. holy shit that's that's scott yeah what would you do well like seriously like i'm thinking specifically of the Unabomber. it's a tough call because look he was trying to send a really important message that was not being sent about de- about industrialization and about the as trying to save the planet before it gets destroyed and uh you know he felt desperate and he was targeting timber company executives who really, for the most part, uh, let's just say that the world won't really miss them when they're gone. But, you know, he also killed, you know, their secretaries who opened their packages. Um, I think well, he, he killed, killed an a mailman. I think oh, he, he killed a mailman. 
Yeah, I think he killed a mailman who was uh, handling one of the packages. So, you know, that sucks. But on the other hand, members of the French resistance accidentally killed, you know, innocent civilians while trying to kill members of the SS. You know, sometimes you have to break an omelet, you know, break an omelet to make a few eggs. I don't know. (laughs) But so I think I kind of I think I would have a really I would have if you were a political serial killer with a cause that I agreed with and that like was important. Yeah, I'd have a, I probably would be like, Scott, I know what you're up to. Cut it out. No more. And if no, you didn't, I'd turn you in. Okay. Well, because at that point, there'd be nothing that I, you know, my actions, like you getting caught is not going to change anything. Like those people are already dead if you stop. But if you don't stop, well, then, you know, I can, I can save more lives. I don't well, know. It was tough. But I mean, back I think, to, but this is certainly not the case here. I mean, no, getting back to uh, Gabby Petito, it's just like, again, it's just assholery of the first order, the way they cover this thing. And um, speaking of assholery of the first order, um, there's so much of that. I know, but uh, especially right now when it comes to our brothers and sisters from Haiti, mm. um, 15,000 Haitians are waiting on the border to come to immigrate to the United States. Were. Uh, uh, the, the, apparently, they, uh, what, they've had as many as 30,000 passing through the camps there. Um, 2,300 have uh, been sent back to Haiti. 8,000 have been sent back to Mexico. And 5,000 are currently being processed in the United States going through the various bureaucratic hoops they have to go through. Um, I've mentioned this before. As far as immigration goes, um, it's a great boon to this country. It always has been ever since the German immigration of the 18th century. I mean, and and the Irish and the Italians and so on. And the Lithuanians and the French. Most importantly. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) But in all seriousness, I mean, it grows your economy. Listen, we're not making babies in this country. So how do you grow an economy? You grow it by having immigration. There's plenty of room in this country. You fly. If anyone who's flown over this land of ours, there's lots of land. There is lots of land. Lots of land to put people. And so, again, is this, I mean, is the, um, you've already heard some Republican Elected officials say, oh, my God, we're going to let this flood come in. Flood. There's no flood. This is a trickle. We have 330 million people, even if we'd let all 15,000 in. I mean, here, take this experiment. Uh, Take 330,000 grains of sand. Now pluck out 15 of them. Do you notice a difference? Yeah. No. Um, But. You know, I think to me, Scott, don't you think this is more of a a media story? Because, I mean, what fascinates me is how this crisis was building and building and building for the, for literally over a month. And then suddenly, Friday, right as we headed into the weekend, into the traditional news media vacuum dump, when knowing that anything that happens on Friday will break on Saturday, when nobody reads the paper, nobody's watching cable news, uh, nobody's paying, everyone's off shopping or, or picnicking or whatever. Um, they, they violently cleared the encampment. They, uh, they got rid of all the media. The FAA imposed a no-fly zone so that media organizations like Fox that have been aggressively covering the story with drones uh, could not fly over and see how they were handling it. I suspect that the footage of the horse of the of the the border and customs enforcement uh, horsemen uh, 
pales in terms of the violence that must have taken place to move 15,000 men, women, and children out from under a bridge in a matter of hours. Um, you know, I'm just guessing it, there were some ugly scenes. Yeah. The media never yeah. got to see them. We never got to see them. It's like it never even happened. That's creepy. And the media doesn't even seem to care that they got hoodwinked. Yeah, but don't you think that, again, I mean, we're coming back to the whole bugaboo of race in the media. The, 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 the media doesn't care. It's a bunch of black people trying to get into the country. You have, you've already had some of the more racist um, elected officials say, we can't let those people come in, um, you know, using the pejorative, those people, because <laughs> okay, we've never heard even, that. Even verbiage. Biden hasn't been particularly sensitive about the Haitians either. I think it's a tough call to say uh, it's, it's an interesting history. Uh, Ted and I love, love to read histories. And I just finished Ron Chanow's uh, biography of Grant. I know I'm a little late to the game on that one, but one of the things that Grant, which I did not know, wanted to annex uh, the Dominican Republic. Mm. And one of his aides said, how about all of Hispaniola, the whole Island? He goes, mm. Haiti. Oh, fuck. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. No, <laughs> that well, place. I mean, the US, up. yeah, and in large part because of U.S. foreign policy. I mean, I do think the U.S. has a special debt to Haiti more than it does to uh, immigrants from other countries. I mean, why? We, well, I mean, American policy in that country has been so brutal and so exploitative for so long um, that many of their problems are our fault. Look, it's not our fault that you know hurricanes like Haiti, but. <laughs> it is certainly, but look, Papa Doc Duvalier and Baby Doc Duvalier, that's our fault. Uh, you know, we propped up these horrid dictators and their Tonton Makut death squads for decades. And they raped and pillaged the treasury. Um, they, they, they eviscerated the country. The Clintons of all people uh, eviscerated uh, the, Haiti, the port of Haiti and Port-au-Prince. Through their own, through their own uh, Clinton Foundation and all these dodgy investments that they <clears throat> carried out in Haiti. No, um, no, the Clinton Foundation is a wealth of wonder and joy to the world <laughs> and the good works they do. Kumbaya. I'm sorry, that's what I hear from my Democratic friends all the friggin' time about this, and it really just seems to be a thing to give Bill and Hillary a lifestyle to which they have become accustomed. Well, we've had, we've had a bipartisan approach to Haiti, which is Democrats and Republicans have both uh, stuck it to them really well, Eisenhower, hard. Eisenhower invaded it, right? I mean, he some... did. And uh, Haiti that was, was when in... Papa Doc was installed. And Theodore Roosevelt, if memory serves, also invaded it. Is that not true? I don't think so. But we all, we've had, yeah, you know, just like I said, we've had our thumb in that stew since, since at least Grant. <laughs> well, ever since the French, ever since the French left, right? Oh, yes. Yeah, so I was almost right. It's Woodrow Wilson who invaded uh, Haiti in 1915. Okay. Any particular and they, reason? And left in just... 1934. <laughs> Any particular uh, reason? Just because. Uh, I like this. The invasion and subsequent occupation was promoted by, wait for it, American business interests in Haiti. So they might just thought, well, you know, it's better to have, you know, it's easier to do business in a country that is occupied by our own country's army rather than deal with pesky foreign laws. God almighty. God almighty. Sorry. I'm just, um, it, we will never, ever, 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 never, ever, 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 never, ever, ever, ever learn. No. Ever. 
And then we installed a horrible puppet uh, guy to replace uh, our our puppet regime. So it's been, yeah, it's been beautiful there. So anyway, so speaking I think of which, I was just going to say, speaking of which, um, now we can go to other horrible, stupid, dumb things we've done. Let's talk, talk Afghanistan. Mike Bolton, the former... Um, John Bolton, John Bolton. What's that? Michael Bol- isn't, isn't it John Bolton? Uh, Michael oh, John Bolton. Bolton. I wrote down Michael He's Bolton. He's the curly-haired singer. When a man loves a woman. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, John Bolton. I'm sorry, the former um, uh, national security guy. Michael Bolton's crimes pale. <laughs> I don't John know. I, well, we'll, say, we'll call it even. But John Bolton was recently interviewed and said that we've got to be careful of the Taliban because they might get their hands on nukes. We may have made a terrible mistakes that the you're talking about a country. I mean, you've been there, Ted. You are much more authoritative on this, but I'm going to guess that their technological um, uh, industry infrastructure is not up to contemporary nuclear standards. Would that be fair? That would be <laughs> extremely fair. Now, having been at one time an applied physics and nuclear engineering major at a major university before they wisely expelled me, uh, they, I will say that making nuclear weapons is not actually that difficult, but you do have to get materiel that is difficult, that's hard to come by, in particular the plutonium for the detonators. Well, and so, so his idea is that they could, he could, they could get it from the Iranians. I'm going, the Iranians are running their centrifuges as fast as they can, and the stuff is very difficult to make, and you make very little of it. And it doesn't and last And they'll be damned if the Iranians are going to give that shit to anybody. Well, not to mention, why would the Shiite... Iranians give it to the Sunni Taliban. Oh, what, why? Oh, what's the worst that could happen? I mean, yeah, I mean, it's like they're they're enemies, they're mortal enemies. Why well, the, would but, they do that? And the Iranians are kind of they 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 do are creating mischief down the southeastern part, right? The border that comes close to their border. Um, so this is, I mean, it's so absurd. This look, the thing about this, the, what I find interesting about this story is not just the fact that another, hey, John Bolton is an asshole, or neoconservatives are assholes. It's uh, granted; those things are obviously always going to be true. But what I think is, okay, neoconservatives are all assholes. No, is that not true? I do not believe that to be true. Now, I believe that many of them, especially. Okay, let me put it this way: in my day, when I was coming up and learning about politics, there were a lot of neocons who were very, very smart and very forward-thinking and and curious, and had the kind of attribute, intellectual attributes you and I would ascribe to a smart person. Well, I don't know. Define that day or define, tell me when that day stopped, because I'm going to say that certainly was not true when they came to power in the George W. Bush administration. I don't think Paul Wolfowitz uh, or Donald Rumsfeld or Dick Cheney uh, were particularly, um, they weren't stupid men, but I don't think they were particularly smart, if you know what I mean. Well, I, I tripped up your point. So what's your, your point about the new Well, anyways. Well, it's okay. Um, so <laughs> what I find interesting about it is sort of, we really don't learn how, we don't, when people make ridiculous arguments that would get you or me laughed out of our editor's office, if we were trying to pitch it as a story, if they're, if they served in government at some point, like John Bolton is a former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations uh, and has been in and out in a, at the corridors of power for many years, it's like, then it's given legitimacy no matter how outlandish it is. And I want to argue against that. I mean, some things are so ridiculous that they shouldn't be entertained. And like you read Bolton's argument, Bolton's argument comes down to uh, 
the Taliban taking over in Afghanistan could destabilize Pakistan. Pakistan has nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons could then fall into the, uh, into the hands of the Pakistani Taliban, and who would then give them to the Afghan Taliban. There's a lot of wealth. I mean, sure. I mean, anything can happen. You know, um, you know, the, the, all the animals could escape from the Bronx Zoo and they could take over NORAD and set off nuclear weapons. But like, I mean, that's not likely to happen, right? It's a ridiculous argument. And it's a ridiculous argument to think that. I mean, Afghanistan's been, de- Pakistan's been a nuclear power for decades and its stability has nothing to do with what happens next door in Afghanistan. I mean, it, na- Pakistan neighbors, Bangladesh, which is an extremely unstable country. Hell, Pakistan is itself an unstable country. Oh, yeah. And so, like, you know, I mean, like, if we want to worry aloud, like, should Pakistan be a nuclear power, given the fact that their command and control structure is maybe a little, uh, it's a little wobbly? We can have that argument. But this, but the Taliban taking over in Afghanistan has nothing to do with anything related to this story, one way or the other. So, um, so okay, but before we Not wrap to mention the, the Afghan, the Taliban have actually stabilized the situation in Afghanistan. The war is over there. You know, like we're gone. There is no war there right now. I mean, that's just a statement of fact. Could there be an uprising? I mean, again, I'm going on with your expertise and your travels in that region. Could there be an uprising against the Taliban? Well, of course there could be. I mean, and, okay, like you said, animals could escape and run for Congress, but but in in real terms, real life. Um, is, uh, the Taliban was in power for many years before we went in and bombed the crap out of them. Um, they're back in power again. But now the people of Afghanistan have seen infrastructure. They've seen you know, television. They, have, they now have cell phones. I mean, all that stuff. Um, is the Taliban smart enough to accommodate that? Or are they going to you know, ratchet that back and try to be fourth century again? How does this and can there be an uprising, a practical uprising or a successful uprising against them? Well, there's internal divisions and we're seeing um, sort of a division between like older Taliban guys and and the younger generation who are a little bit more forward and and, uh, more open minded. Um, There was a a very amusing uh, diktat that went out recently to the Taliban saying, hey, cut it out with all the silly selfies. Uh, You guys are looking ridiculous. Um, you know, and the, you know, a, a worrisome <laughs> sign is that they recently reestablished the Ministry for the Prevention of Vice and the uh, Promotion of Virtue, which is a Wahhabi Saudi Arabian uh, style thing that was, they, these were the guys who whipped women in the, in the 90s. Um, it's not a ministry that we really want to have around. So, uh, there have been some positive mo- uh, moves. There's been some negative ones. It depends what, what city you're in, which commanders you're talking about. But I think the broader question is, you know, can the Taliban successfully uh, control all of Afghanistan and all of its disparate tribes uh, indefinitely? And who the answer to that question is, who knows? I mean, the fact is the Taliban are a Pashtun-dominated movement, and not all Afghans, not even like and not even like 80% of, of, of Afghans are Pashtun. Um, there's a lot of other ethnic groups. We, there's Uzbeks, uh, there's, uh, there's Tajiks, there's Hazaras, uh, there's many others. And uh, they are going to, if they chafe under Taliban rule, 
uh, if they're not accommodated, if they're not brought in uh, as uh, as part of a broad-based alliance, a, a, a sort of unity government, then these are they will rebel and they will fight. I mean, Af- that's what Afghans do. Um, the Afghan way of war is to try to have a broad-based shura council, and uh, that like that represents different factions. But if not everyone is represented, like sort of like. Over the last 20 years, you know, the, the Afghan government did not include the Taliban um, as, a, as part of the coalition. Things fall apart. So things could fall apart. But on the other hand, the Pashtun are the majority of the country. So they could, you know, conceivably, they have that going for them. So it's one of those, like, I'm going to weasel out and say, I don't know. Uh, but it's, it's, it's not a sure thing that the Taliban will be in charge forever. Okay. Well, with that, we're going to wrap things up. Ted, where can we see Ted Rawl? All things Ted Rawl. Uh, you can go to Rawl.com, R-A-L-L.com. And if you're interested in Afghanistan stuff, check out my first book about Afghanistan called To Afghanistan and Back, a and graphic the, travelogue. And the rest of your writings on that subject, uh, Silk Road to Ruin, the uh, um, uh, first, after we, what, after we kill you or... or after we kill you, we will come up with a shorter title. After we kill you, we will welcome you back as honored guests. <laughs> Which is also excellent. Um, you can see behind me, well, you can't see, you podcast listeners, because you're just listening to this, but the video, you can see, I have a, I have a Ted Rawl bookshelf. So, And by the way, uh, and you also have, and uh, I, we should not talk about visuals on a, in an audio format, but no. you also have, is that a Saturn rocket? Saturn V, no. yes. The uh, most beautiful thing. It is gorgeous. Human beings have ever built. It is amazing. I, I, I'm saying being dead serious. I mean, I come the loo, the, 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 the uh, you know, everything, everything, the Eiffel Tower, the pyramids, everything. Uh, the Saturn V is the most beautiful thing. For those of you who know what the um, Tribune Tower looks like, the Tribune Tower is the same height and weight as the Saturn V rocket. Holy shit. I did yeah. not know that. That's the really Saturn cool. V and- rocket left the planet. And Scott Stantis, where can we find all things Scott Stantis related? Go to gocomics.com slash Scott Stantis or go to gocomics.com slash Prickly City, my comic strip. And you can also go to and find two of the country's preeminent cartoonists, at least, Scott Stantis and Ted Rawl, are at counterpoint.com. You can subscribe and support editorial cartooning. So with that being said, thank you, Ted. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for listening to this edition. We'll be back with another one real soon. Until then, we'll see you in the final day.